It might not go in the end where you want to get to now, but keep going. And I would always say to them, look, I'm still paddling under the skirt. There's no problem with that. It drives wives wicked. It makes such a golden brown pot. It must be lots of fun to be a mother. I've got something to apologize for. I wore my good suit because it was plain and neat. Afraid of not knowing what is proper? This yellow fluffo is such a short shortening. Hi, I'm Susan Osman, and this is Been There, Done That, a show about women who are shaping our world. Experienced, smart, versatile women who are redefining what it means to be a woman in the workplace today. You know I can't work without a good breakfast. All right, Claire, stop typing, please. All right, Claire, stop typing, please. This week, I talked to one of these women, Mary Price. She's a producer with an amazing track record. She's produced theatre, television documentaries, television news shows and high-profile radio programmes for the well-known BBC Radio 4 network and directed many famous voices whilst producing audiobooks. Hi, Mary. Now, it's Ireland, 1946. What was it like, can you imagine, for your mother when you came into this world? Well, um, I could go into the drama of my mother, who enjoyed ill health all her life, bless her. Um, Actually, much more interesting, I was born on International Women's Day in a hospital in Dublin called Hatch Street. Can you imagine having a sort of birthing hospital called Hatch Street, only in Dublin? Um, I am not sure, to my shame, that um, International Women's Day had been designated on the 8th of March then, because it was 1946, just after the war. I'm not sure. I had no idea of the significance. And still, I was going up the Yangtze in China in the early 90s, doing a series of documentaries for Radio 4, how important International Women's Day was, because it hadn't reached the West as a day of celebration of woman and achievement. And... On the 7th, all the people I was working with said, we don't work tomorrow. And I said, why? And they said, it's International Women's Day. The women go to the stadium. So I grabbed my flag and went to the stadium and discovered the power of International Women's Day. And since then, I've worked in many places in the world on International Women's Day. And it is hilarious. It tells you everything about being a woman, particularly in developing society, because... The women go on strike. They will not cook. They will not look after the children. They will do nothing. They certainly wouldn't work with me. So you had to (laughs) join in. (laughs) And the women spend all day having a ball. And the men are dispatched to the market to get the food. (laughs) I should think so. (laughs) (laughs) And then the men bring the food and look rather pathetic as they sit around not knowing what to do. And the children run feral. And then eventually they all get together and cook and everyone gets absolutely catechotically, that's not the right word, very drunk. (laughs) So do you think it's important for women to have an international day? I think it's important that there is one day a year to recognise women and for women to use it. And the problem is it doesn't really change society. It is almost a sticking plaster on the inequality which exists. But, you know, it does teach you women are aware of their power if only they were given the permission to use it in many places and they do they use it in the home they don't get the opportunity to use it in a bigger landscape 
Now, women have always played a very big part in your life, especially in your education. I want to know how you went from a convent to Trinity College, the top university in Ireland. How did the nuns influence you? I went to the convent as well, and so we could probably talk for hours about what it's like to be a convent girl. But what was it like being brought up by women at the time when you were being educated? I don't think there are any of them still alive. It was... I went at eight and I left at 18. Uh, they were dedicated to what they were doing. They are a particular order whose genesis is in the hedge schools of Ireland, started by a woman called Nano Nagel. And so they were devoted to teaching, but you learnt whether you wanted to or not. And they would, you got lines, you got beaten, you got... Did you? You actually got beaten? Well... You know, you got smacked over the hand and stuff, not beaten like boys' schools got mm. beaten. But you learned and you lived in terror, so you learned and you worked extremely hard. As my husband always says, I was schooled, not educated, and there is a big difference. Mm, so I spent the rest of my life trying to educate myself. Um, to the point I drive everybody crazy. Um, when I went to Trinity, remember it was a very Catholic time, it was the 60s, there were not that many women in my school because it wasn't a particularly affluent school that went on to third-level education. And when they discovered I was going to Trinity because I absolutely refused to go anywhere else, they called a prayer meeting and the priest came to pray for my soul. And then he looked at me and he said, you're the sort of woman who will lose your faith. No. Mm. That's a very menacing thing to say to a young woman. Well, I sort of thought, hmm, OK, just about lost it. Because <laughs> <laughs> interestingly, they also prayed for my soul at my convent because I was a Protestant. Oh, well, there you are. So I, I said, I said no hope they've, at they've all. They failed. They failed in their endeavour. But it was, it, you know, when I think about it, you can't judge them because they were doing according to their lights, according to what they thought was the right thing. Um, and did it have an effect on you as a young girl that you could achieve what you really set out to achieve? Was that if you'd gone to a mixed school, for example, I mean, it might be a bit gender bias against the boys, that boys are always taught that you can succeed. But if you go to an all-girls school, that there's a more likelihood that you are going to succeed. Did it that, that impact um, on you? I don't think there was any of that, but the expectation was we would do our best. Right. And oddly enough, of the number of girls in my um, sixth year, which was a leaving cert because it was a different set of exams, um, only three of us went directly to university. One of them has ended up as the head of the Irish Diplomatic Corps, mm -hmm. Mary Keating. Out of all of those who left and went on to jobs, they've all achieved third-level education in their own time. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So really, you know, exacerbating the thing that you were, you were schooled rather than educated. And I went on to do what I've always wanted to do. And what was that? I always wanted to work in broadcasting. Um, I grew up on a programme called Listen With Mother, and if you're outside the UK, you won't know it, but it began. It's the first bit of internet radio, inter interactive radio. Dirty da, da. <laughs> I remember Dirty da. Are you sitting comfortably? Yes. Pause. Yes. While your bottom sort of shook on the chair. Then we'll begin. So I went in, after university, I joined the BBC, and one of the first programmes I went and worked on was... 
no. listen with mother. Was it really? Yeah. So you you spent a, a great deal of your career with the BBC and it served you well and you also served it well. You did some very, very high profile programmes. Well, not really. I Just mean, so I was modest. I was in, I was incredibly lucky. I was also unmanageable. But in those <laughs> days, I had managers who knew I would deliver and let me do things. That doesn't happen anymore. Listening must have been an important skill that you gained over the years. Uh, did you acquire that skill, or have you always listened to people? Um, the transition from school to university taught me to watch. Oh, watch rather than listen. And listen and learn. Because it was an enormous transition. Trinity in those days was primarily a, um, a British university. Because if you failed Oxbridge, you turned up at Trinity. Uh, people were much more sophisticated. They'd done A-levels. So they were much better educated. They knew these things. And I was so far out of my depth, it wasn't true. But I learned that if you pretended, paddling under the skirt, which has kept going till this time, and I'm now 73, I still paddle. Um, if you pretended you knew what you were about, you actually got away with it. And you learnt. Don't you think everyone thinks they're, that they're paddling? No, no, I think an awful lot of people think they're absolutely right. Oh, do you really think so? <laughs> Now, you spent your career in the news industry. No, I, oh. spent, my new, I spent my career, I was in telly, not yeah. very successfully because I didn't like it. There were too many people. I'm a real loner. And I did a huge amount of radio. I, I went to telly and then I came back to radio because I realised I could do the interviewing, find a presenter I wanted, find a reporter I wanted, do the interviewing, do the editing and do it in the middle of the night because I had children. Oh, and so I got very good. At, one son is brilliant because he used to come and sit on my lap while I was editing away. Because in those days you could edit on the kitchen table. We used to have little bits of tape, didn't you? They'd stick yeah, together yeah. And with, with a razor blade. Absolutely, absolutely. A, a yellow pencil. Yep. A razor blade and sticky. A lost art. I went and worked in Africa much later, and I thought, oh, I can use my editing skills. Could I? They all had state-of-the-art pro tools and everything else. It was very funny. So it wasn't necessarily news as such, but you were certainly in the sort of current affairs niche, would you Look, say? Look, I tossed between the two. I was in news. I was in news and telly. Um, then I came back to radio. I was in drama. I was a drama director for a while, which I didn't really like because I wasn't particularly good at being nice to people who didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> I mean... Um, and then I went back to news and current affairs and documentary making. And I suppose if I was known for anything, it was documentary making. And I made lots of documentaries and I was incredibly lucky. Do you think documentaries are important? I mean, I seem to think that documentaries have a much more respectful place in the media than they used to do. Or do you well, think they've always been regarded as a, a very important well, art form? Look, there's a man called Charles Parker who really got them going in the 60s. He did a series of radio, the radio ballads, singing the fishing, 
um, there are there are six of six or seven of them, that it was a time when portable recorders were available to go out and interview real people because before that documentaries were made up of scripts which actors read, and he's been incredibly influential, and it's about taking you and I always say it's on a magic carpet to somewhere different and understanding and listening to people who are eyewitnesses who have experienced this. Radio is supreme for it. Television can be extremely good, but it takes an awful lot of money and time and dedication. And these days, the money's not there quite often. But in radio, it is still there. And the people who are good documentary painters are all as odd as two left feet. So which of your radio documentaries are you proud to leave as your legacy? Which of yours do you think, well, that's a that's a really good message I want to leave to the world? Um, well, they were different. I don't think I was giving a message because I think the people in them were giving the message. Right. I'm very proud of having done The Long March, which was absolutely revelatory because I had BBC stamped on my forehead and the Chinese officials watched every move. I did a series um, of on the Yangtze River before I did the Long March called um, The Great River. And that's where I ended up on International Women's Day, which I'm very proud of because we literally went from out to sea on the bar to as far as you can navigate up the Yangtze. And it was a a wonderful experience of revelation of China. What did what were the revelations for you at that time? Um, it was the difference between the propaganda about China and being with people. And we the the Yangtze River. I don't know if you know is the dividing line between North, North. China and the tropical. Yeah. Well, it wasn't tropical. It snowed. <laughs> it's been so cold in my life. And I wore my same clothes the whole time for two months. And a friend picked me up at the airport. We went and had breakfast. And um, we went back to the car where I dumped all my stuff. And I said, good Lord, this car smells. And she looked at me rather apologetically. She said, it's you. No. <laughs> we hadn't washed. <laughs> That's really we funny. And they say that the big noses, foreigners, as we're called in China, smell anyway. Because well, we the, do. We smell of the dairy. We smell yeah. of lamb and butter. Mm. So it was you that was smelling. It was me that was smelling. Now, I know you're very keen on the environment mm -hmm. and I know you love donkeys. Have you ever wanted to make documentaries either about donkeys or about the environment? I've made loads about the environment. Loads for Radio 4. Um, loads and loads. And I i mean, the, the thing that was interesting about leaving the BBC, as I did when I was getting old, was I had accumulated skills and interests which I could pick up and use. So I was always very interested in helping young people. Yeah. We used to sit at night getting their terrible offerings right. And they've all gone on to do very well. And I used to do... Were these young women or men and women? Women. 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 A couple of men, one of them who is the head of the department now. <laughs> um, and the interesting thing was I, I had done some training as well for the BBC because it's about, I remember organising seminars once a week and one of the first I organised was this strange thing called the World Wide Web. Mm, gosh. And had somebody, because none of us knew anything about it. No. 
and had some child come who was super, I can't remember his name, who introduced us to it. And we all sat there thinking, mm, this is interesting. <laughs> We've just got electronic typewriters. And it wasn't that long ago. No, not very long ago at all. Um, anyway, all of that stood me in good sense. So when I left the, the Beeb, I decided I had to discover whether I existed outside an institution. An institution like the BBC is absolutely wonderful. I had a charmed career. But you get to the point where you think, do I exist outside this? Mm -hmm. So I left. And I had two ambitions. One was to work for an organization called the IMMF, International Media Memorial Foundation, which was set up by a photographer from the American War who has written a book called In Uncle Ho's Victory Garden, if anybody wants to look it up. And I wanted to work for them, and I wanted to work for an organisation called Thompson Foundation, not to be confused with Thompson Reuters, but Thompson Foundation. Two very different organisations, Two very different organisations. And I was very lucky, probably through Old Boys Network, because it was mainly BBC staff, ex-staff, I went to work in Sierra Leone, my first gig with them, on post-war reconstruction in late 90s, early 2000s. And I just loved it. And I had a ball. And after that, I went to lots of different places. So I was lucky enough doing that to go everywhere. And that led to, because I'd done a lot of environmental programs, I do an awful lot of work on training existing journalists. And they were always existing journalists. They weren't students. Um, in covering um, climate change. Do you find that as you've been training journalists, because I know you've trained them from all over the world, has the the focus of your training had to change as news inevitably has changed because of the World Wide Web and the instantaneousness of the news? Well, quite often you're in places where they don't have that sort of access. Remember, I've stopped doing that a while now. They certainly didn't have access. And also in emerging nations, particularly in African emerging nations, the kit wasn't there, the money wasn't there, the investment in the journalists wasn't there, and very often you've got journalists who are heavily controlled by governments. So the approach had to change, and you had to sort of think how much danger are you putting people in. Mm-hmm. And, and I have worked in Southeast Asia in countries that are very highly controlled. And they taught me a lot because they taught me I lived in cloud cuckoo land as far as they were concerned. I remember doing a management course in Laos, which is a country I love. And the chaps were all station managers. I had a wonderful interpreter. I often wonder what happened to him. He used to set them right at the end. <laughs> I was dismissed on the last day why he said whatever she said, ignore it. But that was all right. Um, and I remember going on a boat up the Mekong so we could have a nice day out and we would do management. And one of them looked at me at something I said about balance and independence and all the BBC stuff. It is so irrelevant in some countries. (laughs) And started to laugh. And they all cried with laughter. What on earth had you said? I can't remember. Like, you know, you have to tell the truth. You have to get this. You have to do that. And how do you manage and how do you do a schedule and how you do this? And it was such a good lesson for me because I realised we are not white saviours. We cannot tell a country 
that is controlled how to manage because it's not going to make any difference and it could put them in huge jeopardy. So you have to give them, you don't jeopardize, you don't sacrifice your own integrity, but you have to give them what you think can be useful and hope. And what was very interesting in all of this is I was there for about five or six years, backwards and forwards. I used to go from one end of the country to the other, and then I went back to do management and stuff. And you looked at them, and you got to know them very well, and occasionally you'd see a flash, and you'd think, ah, you've got it. How but interesting. how are you going to use it? You've obviously been around for decades, and you're very, very experienced. And obviously you care you know, passionately about younger women and bringing that talent forward. So there's two parts, really, I want to talk to you about. One is... What advice would you give to a younger woman starting off in the profession now? And what prejudice and discrimination did you yourself encounter, if any, when you were coming up through the ranks? You know me. (laughs) (laughs) No one would dare. Oh, they did. Um, I started a programme for Radio 4 called Europhile in... The first one went on the air on the 11th of November, 1989, which was good timing. I was always good at timing. And when I went from my base in Bristol to London, they weren't exactly welcoming me because they were all newsboys. And what did I know? Well, you must have been one of the few women around in journalism no, at that time. No, no, oh, no. Oh, there no, were no, lots no, of no, others. No, 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 Jenny Abramsky, people much higher up the tree to me. But I earned my stripes in the most peculiar way. We needed an office, and there wasn't one. So I marched around the building, found a vacant lot, found house management, and I said, I want this turned into an office by Monday. It was Friday. They would have loved you. And they did it. So what do you make of the hashtag MeToo movement? Do you think it's got relevance? If I was really cynical, I'd say been there, done that. (laughs) (laughs) Funny that. Um, Look, it's it's really interesting. It comes back to feminism. Um, I remember, well, it started way back, it started in the 19th century, but I remember the sort of first flush of it in the 60s where we all got very excited. Um, and people, women pulled together and people really did try to do it. And there is a big debate to be had as to what happened because, yes, women did be themselves, but in a way that I might be supposed to say, I feel they let some of what my generation fought for go. That's very interesting. So there's a real gap in the sisterhood is what you're saying. Um, I wouldn't put it as extremely as that, but they, they have a different set of values. And then suddenly they discover, and also sexual liberation meant sexual availability, meant exploitation. Men have always exploited. There is a thing about ambition, and we're all guilty of it, is to get to the next step, we sometimes lose our own integrity. Mm-hmm. And I'm not suggesting for one moment that anybody who has been ravaged by any of these people mm-hmm. do, but they are, they're keen, they're young, they're vulnerable, and they don't know the rules. And it's become such a commerce. And people like all the people who've been hauled up in court, they're just exploited and they knew it. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing like power. There's, um, 
some of the ugliest men I know have had strings of women. And it's extraordinary, power, isn't it? It's power. Yeah. It's power and money. Very interesting. So what advice would you give to a young woman then setting out on a similar path today? Well, I always used to say, as they were sitting there in tears, and we were trying to sort something out, I'd say, no, I can't do it. I'd say, yes, you can. And then I'd look at them and I'd say, and this is what I still do, do you want to? Mm-hmm. And they said, yes. And I said, in that case, you will. It might not go in the end where you want to get to now, but keep going. And I would always say to them, look, I'm still paddling under the skirt. There's no problem with that. I know you're going to keep going, and I know you take a very dim view of retirement, don't you? I think it's a construct of the um, industrialised society. You know, what would I do? My friends say I'm a workaholic. That's probably true. But are those most friends playing golf and yeah, doing other playing things? Golf, <laughs> playing golf and looking after their grandchildren. Um, you can do all of that and keep on. And I have a mortal fear, and this goes back to school versus education. I have a mortal fear of being out of touch. And I go away quite a lot, so don't feel too sorry for me. And at the end of my two-month stint away, I start to go slightly loopy because the adrenaline's not oh, doing its thing. Very honest of you to admit that. And I have to get back. I have to get back. I have to get into a studio. I have to get into something I've got to do. I'm goal-orientated. So what's your next goal? To do a book called Brooklyn with a very wonderful actor. <laughs> but I tell you, I have another goal. In my other life, I love gardening. I'm not very good, but I'm building a pond. Oh, are you? Mm. And I know you, you're keen to do video games. Oh, my final goal. I will hang my boots up. You've heard it here. Mm, I, I can't will. imagine that happening, Mary. Well, but I might, be, I might be dumped out. I, When I was in Hong Kong, one of the industries for expats was the translation of Ran Ran Shaw Gung Fu movies. And a lot of the people who did it, I knew. And I said, I'd like to have a go for a start. We were skint. Um, they said, OK. So I was given a script. For script, it's a sort of large quantity of papers sort of glued together. And um, the script went, ah, <laughs> and you had to put a narrative to this and you there got is. the loops from from the rushes and you had to I can't imagine this being in any way at all challenging for you it was oh was it because you had to do a narrative you had to oh. and you had you were given a sort of top line of what the story was about so our ping was captured by our ming and the warlord wanted and so you had to for an hour and a half devise this thing and then you had to direct the three or four expat actors who were normally the worst for alcohol in doing it and i realized when video games came along it's the next evolution of run run shore movies and i have tried to get into it. it's a very close shop yes very close shop i know lots of people who do the voiceovers and lots of people who say you'd be brilliant at this but all the companies are run by very young men and they certainly don't think a 70-plus-year-old woman is going to be able to come in and manage the actors, who I know. <laughs> I'm sure you can manage anybody, Mary. You talked about paddling under the skirt. What do you think is your life motto, if you've got one? Get on with it. 
Just get on with it. Just get on with it. Never give up. Thank you so much. Mary Price, you've certainly been there, done that. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you for listening to Been There, Done That with me, Susan Osman. Visit us on btdtshow.com for more interviews with dynamic women. And I'd love to hear from you as well, so please leave us a review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. These are words of respect. How can you tell when you're really in love? And look how flaky it is. The girls weigh each portion of food they select. The Been There, Done That show is brought to you by Dan Hall at Pup Media Consultancy. We can still have a lot of fun, can't we? Your manners are showing. I'm a princess. Mabel loves cooking and does it well. Overweight makes an individual undesirable. Lovely stockings. And you think that's all that matters?